Welcome to the Henrietta Mass Murders, the updated timeline. Today we revisit the Henrietta Mass Murders timeline. Since the last time, we have received new updates from survivors Crystal Strong and Caitlin Babb, and our investigations have revealed Jesse McFadden's father, potentially. potentially. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. first 2023 there were seven bodies that were found at the McFadden residence in Henrietta Oklahoma those seven bodies included Jesse McFadden Holly Tanette L McFadden his wife her three children Riley Elizabeth Allen Michael James Mayo Tiffany Dorgess and then two friends who came to sleep over with Tiffany Ivy Berlin Webster and Brittany Cheyenne Brewer. This was pretty crazy, guys. And the reason is this, just to give you kind of a quick recap. And that's that what started out as a slumber party and two girls being reported missing ended in just an atrocious working of the case from beginning to end, which hasn't ended by far. Because when they were found, it was a murder-suicide. Jesse had killed everybody and then shot himself in the mouth. Um, they were all shot in the head. Um, if you want some of those details, we provide those details in the Slumber Party Massacre podcast that we did. So you guys can go check that out. Um, we won't be going over all those details today. That's just really just going to be the timeline. Now, since then, what has come out and what has come to light since the release of our last post on that particular case is the autopsies came back. We're still digging into the autopsies just because... There's some fishiness going on in terms of time of death, in terms of uh, toxicology reports that came back, clearing everyone of mostly everything. I'm saying that pretty much everyone was was clean with the exception of, of one or two people. But we're just continuing to dig. And so this new updated timeline is really to drive additional content around the history of this case from, from beginning to end. What's new, Crystal? Yeah. What's new? <laughs> There's a lot of new stuff, So, which is actually kind of requiring us to kind of go back through everything. So if you didn't get a chance to catch um, the last timeline that we did, we might have gone into some details a little bit more in that one. I'll at least say that. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty in this one other than where the updates are. I'm going to start off in 1983. 1983. I was 11 years old. I was one. <laughs> <laughs> 
1983, between 83 and about January 2004, LaDonna Jean McFadden, who's Jesse's mother, she moved to Oklahoma to the address that we know as 9041 Redbird Drive in McAllister, Oklahoma. If you've heard anybody speak about where he grew up, where they say he had dirt floors, he lived in a trash trailer, that's this address. If you were to pull it up online, it's pretty sad what you see. August 23rd, Floyd Jean McFadden, who is McFadden's maternal grandfather, changes the resident agent on his business account in Wichita, Kansas. He had a company called Wichita Fence Company. A lot of records are missing, so we can't confirm whether there was a sell of shares or what occurred there, but the change occurs only within a day of McFadden's birth. 1983, Jesse Lee McFadden of Virgo is born to LaDonna Jean McFadden at the age of 18. She would have been pregnant at 17. Up until now, we were unable to find his birth certificate. We were unable to find any relationship that LaDonna McFadden had that would have indicated a possible father. And there was actually some speculation that possibly his maternal grandfather was actually his father. One of the things that McFadden had mentioned to Caitlin Babb, who was the victim in the pending case when he was released from prison, is that she knew that he had mentioned that the father was much older, but from all indications, he didn't know who his father was. So we did a lot of digging, and we believe that we have found his father, and they're a spitting image of each other, truthfully. It's uh, shocking. It's very shocking. We believe his name is Burl Alton Blair. He would have been 44 when McFadden was born, and LaDonna would have been 18 years old, a 27-year difference. So what do we know about Alton Blair? If that is Jesse McFadden's dad, like, what do we know about him? Who is this guy, this mysterious guy? Why is he important in this situation, in this conversation? So for starters, all indications lead to the fact that him and LaDonna are currently married. She just didn't take his last name. The last record that we have is dated August 1st, 2021, and they're listed as husband and wife, and it was through a sale of property. Why this is so important and so important to the case is that we've been speculating that there's been some corruption within the justice system somehow, some way that allowed for McFadden to be released in the manner that he was and to have ended up in this tragic event where these children should not have lost their lives. And this guy is very well connected and he has a lot of money and he could have applied a lot of pressure. He could have paid a lot of people off. And so that is why this man is very important to this case. I know there's been a lot of questions and a lot of speculation in terms of Jesse's legal team and who he had as an attorneys. And the fact that he'd been in jail since he was 19, he was indigent when he went to jail he got a public defender when he went to prison. So who was paying for these lawyers and who was paying for all these uh, extensions for like over six years of paying for these lawyers to continue to kick the can down the road? Who was footing this bill? Because it definitely wasn't LaDonna McFadden. So just to give you guys some background on who we've already spoken with concerning this case, we have already done a podcast with McFadden's first survivor, Crystal D. Strong. And we are prepping to do a podcast with his second survivor, Caitlin L. Babb. Can you tell me a little bit about this guy, this, uh, this Alton, this, this Alton Blair? What is it that we know about him? Like you said, he was 44 when he would have gotten LaDonna pregnant with Jesse. Yes. So right now he's in his 80s. He owns 
more than 400 restaurants across the U.S., he definitely would be able to pull some strings and pay some people off, absolutely, for sure. His business is called Donut Palace, and there are a lot of them. He also sells kitchen equipment, that kind of stuff, and does a number of other different things. So he may not be a Jeff Bezos, but he's up there. He's not a small fish in this case, for sure. I know that a lot of people have been really trying to connect dots where it came to pageant, thinking that somehow pageant, the pageant family was connected somehow, some way. And we're very big on releasing things that we've vetted. And we don't want to smear anybody's name who obviously, regardless of their indiscretions, aren't truly part of this case. And as of today, we have not found any connections with the pageants. And truthfully, in this scenario, he would be a very small fish. So I would say that the spotlight right now is on this potential father. We say that only because we're trying to understand how he had influence on this case right. over the life cycle of the case from the time that McFadden got out of jail or actually from the time that McFadden picked up this last case. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Think about if you have a lot of money on the line and you own a lot of businesses, you're making a lot of money, your people know you, and it's very important for your image not to be tarnished. What would happen if everybody found out that you had a rapist as a son? Oh, and by the way, you were 44 and she was 17 when you got her yeah. pregnant. Yeah, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? So We haven't found anything to, to suggest that Mr. Blair is like Jesse right. McFadden, but there is a huge age difference between LaDonna and this individual. So what do you think the connection is there? So something tells me if you, if you look at the locations of everybody and the ages and all that stuff, it appears that he's around the same age as LaDonna's father. They're under the umbrella of the same type of, of job, which is like construction and that kind of stuff. So something tells me that Floyd Jean McFadden, who is McFadden's maternal grandfather, had some kind of connection with this man. And that somehow in that connection, LaDonna was exposed to him. And however it ended up that they had the relationship that they had, or maybe it wasn't a relationship, I don't know. She ended up pregnant and ended up pregnant by somebody who's significantly older than her. And I'm pretty positive that if this is indeed, you know, his father, I'm pretty sure that there was quite possibly some extortion that occurred between Floyd and this potential father in order to keep information from getting out that would make him look bad. Because also him getting somebody pregnant 27 years younger than him also looks bad for business. So that would have been a threat to him. To his reputation? Absolutely. And even more so now in today's day and age. Maybe not as much back then, but definitely even more so now. Yeah. And we don't believe that Jesse McFadden knew his father. But he did make some comments about what he knew about his father from, I guess, from hearing from his mom. Is there anything that we could share in regards to that? Yeah. So one of the things, and this is this is in writing with, with Caitlin Babb. He wrote Caitlin Babb a letter and he was talking about his mom and his dad and the fact that his dad was older. And, and actually his mom lied to him based on the information he shared because she didn't give as big of an age gap as there actually is. And she told him I was 17. He was way older than me. And he said, oh, well, how did you guys meet? And she kind of got quiet and then tried to jokingly say on a street corner. And then didn't elaborate, didn't go into any, you know, any details. But she laughed it off and said he was really a pervert. So McFadden jokes with his mom and says, oh, well, you're not innocent in the whole deal. 
like basically indicating like maybe you're a pervert too. I guess yeah. it takes one to know one. So, and that's in writing. So it's very and, interesting. Yeah. And I think that from obviously what we've learned about McFadden and in talking to, you know, his survivors is that he couldn't keep his mouth shut. So if he knew who his father was and he knew the position that his father held, that would have come out. So there's no way he would have kept that. He would have used it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he he was he was manipulative and he would have used that as a way to intimidate other people or to flex his muscle and be like, well, my father's wealthy and my father's in a strong position in society. And so if you don't, you know, I will like, you know, what I'm saying type type deal. Absolutely. And if you think about that, why would a mother not share with her child who the father is? Why do you think that is? That's a great question. I don't know. And he has other kids, right? I don't think he does. There's one person who appears to maybe be connected to him that quite possibly is an age to be a child, but he's never been married that we can see. He has a spotless record. There's nothing out there that shows like him and, and kids or anything of that nature. From what we've been able to find. Right. Yeah. Currently from what we've been able so, to find. So that's not to say that there's not. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's very possible. But because of the paperwork that we saw recently, as late as 2021, he was still married to LaDonna, and there hasn't been any documentation that we've been able to find that would indicate that a divorce has happened or anything like that. Right. So, And, and it, the other thing, too, is that she's currently been in a relationship for at least more than 10 years now with a gentleman with the last name Hugel, and they didn't marry, so they're not married. And It's because she's already married. Right. You know, not everybody believes in marriage, and, you know, that's a thing as well. But Does he know she's married? I know. Does he know? I don't think Jesse knew she was married. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because he would have said, yeah. And he would have asked more questions, I think. For sure. Yeah. I think she's been keeping this a secret. And I even think from her family, I don't think her family knows either. And I know that there's based on conversations that we've had with people close to this case, that there was some friction within the family as well. Who knows what that could be? That could be because of McFadden. They could be in a disagreement with, you know, what she was supporting or not supporting. So there's many things about that that we don't know. Is it possible that he could be Cody's father? No, I don't think so. Because Cody's father is definitely Indian, and he's a registered Indian in Oklahoma as a Sioux Indian. So, Gotcha. Okay. McFadden doesn't look to be Indian, not one bit whatsoever. No. <laughs> the reason the timeline's important is because it connects a lot of dots when it comes to names that you're going to hear and kind of triggers for how things occurred, how they played out. So that's why this is important. We're not going to expound on a lot of details other than the things that maybe we didn't cover in the last one. I definitely encourage you to, to kind of connect all the dots to listen to both, truthfully. So in 1985, on August 1st, is when Judge Robin W. Adair was assigned as a Muskogee special judge and is currently sitting in that position. And why is that important? That's important because Adair is who is listed on the court case for Caitlin Babb throughout the entire court case. That was the sitting judge. So, And he's been sitting since 1985? It's a she, but yes. Oh, oh, wow. A Robin could be a he <laughs> or a she. That's good. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Got it. So she's been sitting there since 1985. And you know, there's a little bit of confusion. I know people are going to be confused as we go through some of these things. There's some positions that are elected positions 
There's some positions that are appointed positions. And there's some situations where when somebody is removed or steps up or steps down from a position that even is elected, where the governor can come in and appoint somebody in the interim. So I just want people to be aware of that. And not all positions in the DA are elected positions. The main position is the person who's in charge of the DA's office. But the other ones, they can be recruited as attorneys from various areas. So they don't have to be elected. So I just want everybody to have that as a, you know, keep that in the back of your mind. Judge Adair served over his third case, which would have been with Caitlin Babb. And just to let you know how these cases kind of fell is case number one, which is the Grand Larceny case, occurred in Pittsburgh County. Case number two, which was the rape of Crystal D. Strong, that occurred in Pittsburgh County as well. Caitlin Babb's case is in Muskogee County, Oklahoma, so a different county, different judge. But interestingly, you're going to hear some of the same names in both counties, which is a little odd, but they're also, the, the cities are close together, so, you know, that can be somewhat common maybe. But still, it's in connecting the dots, It's that stands out. A little co-mingling of the counties. Yeah, a little co-mingling. So in 1988, Holly Tanette L. Mayo, a Pisces, is born to Michael Anthony and Jeanette Louise Mayo in El Paso, Texas. At this point in time, McFadden would have been four and a half years old. On July 12th, Cody Ray McFadden, a cancer, his brother, is born to LaDonna Jean McFadden, and we are unaware of who the father is. He would have been almost five at this point. Then in 1995, we have documentation that shows that McFadden, who was 12 at the time, was in fifth grade at Indianola Middle School in Indianola, Oklahoma. The fact that he was 12 lets us know that quite possibly he was held back a grade or two or had a learning disability. Sometime in 1999, McFadden was about 16 years old. It's alleged that as a ninth grader, which is what he said was his last grade completed, and we didn't find any record to support this. We could only find him through the fifth grade. So there's a good possibility that he only made it through the fifth grade. So we're not positive on that only because we haven't been able to find anything in writing to indicate that. But there is a possibility he completed ninth grade. But in ninth grade, it's alleged that he sexually assaulted a sixth grader on the school bus. When this occurred, LaDonna pretty much minimized the assault um, and begged the person, hey, please don't, you know, do anything about this. He's a kid. You know, I'm pretty sure that was kind of the conversation, what we're speculating anyways. And it was swept under the rug. Now, this came out fast forward after the news comes out after May 1st, when people hear Crystal D. Strong's story. Oh, my gosh, I didn't even know that you were assaulted. Hey, by the way, this happened to me on the bus, just so you know. Right. And that led to some speculation around Cody. And I know we had some several conversations where we were trying to, I don't know, we were speculating on whether McFadden may have sexually abused his brother, his younger brother. Yes. And I actually, I've, I've had multiple conversations with both Crystal and Caitlin about his history. And Caitlin really knows more background with McFadden because she had a relationship with him at one point in time when he was manipulating her. So, during that grooming process and that manipulation, he gave her a lot of information. Crystal, on the other hand, wasn't friends with him. Like he wasn't, he wasn't anything to her. So she really didn't know him. And after her assault, honestly, she really blocked things out. And there's a lot of things she doesn't remember. Yeah. But. Which is typical, which is normal. Right. Which is absolutely normal. And so, it, you know, this, 
all of this coming out has really started to open some wounds for Crystal that she never allowed to heal. And she's starting to remember things and she's having some traumatic results, you know, due to that getting sick as she's remembering things because it's, it's traumatic, you know, to be brought back to that. Understandably. So, so the thing with Cody in, in speaking with both the McFadden survivors is that they kind of saw Cody as a kind of a regular older brother, little brother relationship. You know, some people talked about how Cody wanted to be just like his big brother. Then some people talked about how they really were kind of almost like estranged. But they spent a lot of time alone together in the trailer while their mom was working. She worked two jobs. They were very poor growing up. They spent a lot of time together alone. And the thing about this is that when talking to his first survivor and how brutal everything was and how he spoke to her, one of the things that he told her was he threw clothes to her and told her to go wash them. And he also told her to go wash up. That is not somebody who's raped somebody for the first time. That's a serial rapist. Right. The behavior, the behavior of a serial, serial rapist. Right. Yeah. So, and because of that, that leads us to believe based on, you know, psychology and previous cases of this kind of nature that he had to have sexually assaulted Cody. Well, I think the, really the speculation is that he assaulted other people and potentially also assaulted Cody. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And the reason why that is, is because the age difference between Jesse and Cody would have been about five years, which would have put Jesse at about when he was around 14, 15, hitting puberty and becoming sexually interested and sexually active or interested in becoming sexually active. His brother would have been been around like nine, 10 or 11. Right. And they were like you said, they were alone a lot. And he's already shown a predilection for sexual assault. And we also know that he's bisexual. So he's he has sex with guys and also with girls. That's proven when in the cases that he has in prison. So the potential to sexually abuse his younger brother is extremely high. Absolutely. Additionally with that is that the outcome of Cody and the behavioral issues that Cody has is indicative of someone who may have been sexually abused in the past. And you know, something interesting that Crystal should shared with me is that most people who knew Cody, he was a sweet kid. He was a sweet kid and he wasn't a weirdo in school. He wasn't, you know, nothing like that. He was a sweet, good kid, not like his brother. And so one of the things that she said was striking to her recently when she was remembering some things is that she remembers that when she returned to school that they wanted to do some kind of karate, like, hey, we want to prevent something like this from happening And she said she was face to face with Cody and she said the look on Cody's face and the way he responded was like a complete, like uncomfortable, like almost like he felt bad for her, but like just weird. She said it was a very strange encounter. Like he was shocked and he was like, he wasn't sticking up for his brother. He was, there was a sense of shame and a sense of, you know, she said it was very awkward, a very awkward interaction. And that kind of makes sense, right? Especially if, if you're also a survivor of that abuse and then having someone else who's, you know, and not being able to share that story because one, he's a guy. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and the other correlation there and why we, you know, are kind of, you know, pulling the strings down this path of, of was he sexually abused by his brother is the fact that when he had the, the meltdown, right? when his brother came out of prison, there was a meltdown. Can you kind of talk through that? Something that's interesting is that there is a report that's filed by LaDonna 
on Cody and it's within, I want to say within less than a month, she files a, an emergency protective order and Cody kind of blew up. He said he was going to kill himself. He got in his vehicle. He set his vehicle on fire with himself in it. Um, LaDonna was scared for herself, scared for him, called 911. Well, guess who was there when all this occurred? Jesse McFadden. Yes. So it seems a little odd that he had this meltdown at this point in time, shortly after McFadden's been released and he's now staying with his mom. And keep in mind that McFadden went to prison when he was 19. Right. Which would have made Cody 14. Right. Right. So, so now all these years later, now Cody is a man. Mm-hmm. And Jesse McFadden is also a man. And now they're right. on equal terms now. Now it's not a power struggle there anymore. Right. You know, they're on, on the same level. And it's very likely that Cody could have been having an issue w- with the fact that his mother was so accommodating to Jesse, knowing what he did. Oh, for sure. We've, we've heard that LaDonna didn't have a relationship with Cody. Right. They were very estranged. And, you know, if, if you look at molestation of children and sexual abuse of children, one of the things that you'll find that occurs throughout adolescence and later in life is substance abuse, arson, trouble with, with relationships, trouble with women, could be trouble with men as well. But those are all significant indicators of, of molestation. And Cody meets all of those things. So Is Cody Jesse McFadden's third survivor? For sure. I bet. Potentially. And, you know, I don't think anybody's thinking about that. What's sad is that when something like this occurs is that we immediately go to, oh, he's just like his brother. Oh, she's got two sons that are horrible. And I don't give excuses for anybody. Like, I don't care what happened to you. That doesn't give you the right to do something to somebody else. But what I do want people to pay attention to is the fact that Cody could very well have been a survivor as well and has been unable to deal with his trauma. Yeah. Especially as a guy. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really tough. That's, for a guy to be sexually abused by another guy, it's really hard to, to bring that forward and to get help for that. And, you know, if this occurred and he shared it with his mom, he's absolutely going to have a source of contention with his mom for not supporting him. Yeah, and then accepting him back into the house and being like, yeah, come back, my baby's back. That could have been a huge trigger for him. Yeah, huge. So we're still in 1999. On August 27th, the Henrietta police chief, a 30-year veteran, is fired. For what? It had to do with embezzlement, and he didn't serve any prison time. This seems to be a common theme. But first of all, it's really odd for there to be a chief of police for 30 years. That's true. So I get it. It's a small town, but that's not super common for somebody to be sitting in a seat that long. So then on September 16th, of 1999, Caitlin Lindsay Babb of Virgo was born. At this time, McFadden would have been 16 years old. In 2002, between September and December 3rd of 2002, McFadden, who's 19 years old at the time, says that he was working for Walmart. He says he worked there for about three to four months and quit when he moved to Kansas for a short period of time. On November 25th, he receives a charge for possession of alcohol by a person under 21, and this case is dismissed. This case is dismissed in Muscogee County, and the DA in the case is Russell Takira. You're going to hear that name later. The judge on the case is James Bland. You're going to hear that name. And the attorney at the time is Joe Layden. You're going to hear that name again as well. On December 20th, McFadden steals $64,000 from his grandfather's 
Floyd Jean McFadden's house in Pittsburgh County, Oklahoma. His grandfather filed charges. To say his grandfather filed charges, I think that's, that's unique because in every other instance, everyone in his family is covering for him, but not his grandfather. All right. Well, and $64,000 is a lot of money. So, yeah. So in 2003, sometime in 2003, McFadden, who's still 19, he says that he worked for Sonic for a brief period of time. Then in February, on February 14th, McFadden pleads no contest to speeding. He was going 98 in um, a 70 mile per hour road. This was also dismissed. Same group of undesirables. <laughs> <laughs> potentially. I don't have that in front of me currently, but, yeah. but potentially. On March 20th is his arraignment. This would be his initial appearance for his grand larceny. And he claims to have no money, even though he had just stolen $64,000. He later tells Caitlin Bab that the money was placed into an account before it could be seized. So... That money could have switched hands or that money could be in an account somewhere. Who knows? What was the relationship with LaDonna and her dad? From everybody that we've talked to, it seems like Floyd was abusive with his wife, not very respectful, and that that behavior potentially transferred to his his children as well. Yeah. The reason why I ask is because I wonder if... LaDonna was part of the theft of the money. Was it something that she did with her son? And the reason why I say it is because he would have had to take in that money and put it somewhere. And I don't know, to me, I don't see Jesse as being this big mastermind and being like, oh, I'm going to put this money somewhere. Not only that, but very shortly after this time, he goes to prison. So does he get the opportunity to spend that money or does his mom right. keep that money? The and other thing just, too that's... Little, little things I think about. Yeah, the other thing too that's odd is... I don't know who keeps $64,000 cash that can be stolen in their home. He had left Kansas a number of years ago. He had a business in Kansas. We don't know if he sold it or not. Um, we don't have documentation of that currently. But even in that scenario, you're not going to have $64,000 of cash. So that's yeah. a little bit of a strange thing within the case. Yeah. And his business wasn't a cash business, so it didn't come from right. his normal operation of business. And the other thing that we were able to uncover is that in his obituary, they talk about him having started this Wichita Fence Company in Wichita, Kansas. And then when he moved to McAllister, he started McAllister Fence Company. There was never a registered business in McAllister, Ooh. Oklahoma. So if he was in business per se, then he was in a cash business, like you said. So Yeah. So then on March 28th, there was a preliminary hearing that's conducted for McFadden, and he's officially charged with grand larceny of the money that he stole from his grandfather. Sitting on this case is Judge James Bland, DA Chris Wilson, and McFadden's attorney, who is Jeremy Beaver. The court clerk is Linda Price Williams. That's a name that you want to remember. Also, he indicates during this time frame because he filled out paperwork basically to get an attorney to be assigned to him so that he didn't have to pay for it. And he indicates that he's married to a Stephanie McFadden. So Jesse McFadden was married at 19? He was married. What? And what makes this even crazier is you'll hear in a little bit that he was in another relationship, but he was married when this occurred, and we did find some proof of that. We don't know if he got divorced. So there's a potential that 
but also due to their ages too, there could have been an annulment when he went to prison. We're not sure. So what is it that we know about his wife? So she currently has been married for quite a while. She potentially could have been in the military. All the places that she's been to are places that you go to in the military. She's currently in North Carolina, living a good life. Um, We've reached out to try to speak to her and, you know, she may not want that kind of spotlight and that's understandable for sure. Their marriage would have been around the time frame, just so that everybody's kind of aware, 2003, 2004. Now, in 2004, he ends up going to prison, but just remember that because they would have still been married at the point he was in prison. And the reason that we know that is because her name is still McFadden at that point. Right. I think that in our research, we identified that she joined the military potentially. And if that is the case and he's in jail... Maybe that's where the annulment came from to say, hey, I've been married for less than a year. My husband's in jail. You know, I want to annul this marriage. Right. And that would have been her ability to break away. Right. So then on April 1st, he's appointed counsel. And guess who his attorney is that's appointed? Joe Layden. Joe Layden was who we mentioned in the other case that we talked about earlier. He turns 20 around this time frame. And he indicates that his address is 9041 Redbird Drive. And you'll see a little bit different addresses. They actually said that at some time there during this time frame, he was really didn't even have an address, that he was listed as a transient, which would be somebody who's homeless. On April 4th, there's a preliminary hearing conference. And that happens when basically the attorneys and DAs and everything get together. Typically, the whoever the, the plaintiff and defendant is don't typically have to be there for that. So they met, and during this meeting, they reduced his bond from $10,000 to $5,000. The DA at this point in time is Jimmy R. Harmon. And it makes sense that they would do that in this case because he can't pay his grandfather back from jail. Right. So to be able to bond him out and be able to, be able to get him back to work, and I'm sure that's probably his excuse, hey, let me out, give me, reduce my bond, I can go work, I can start paying this money back because that was part of what's going to transpire, right? That's true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. So on April 10th, a subpoena is issued for the grand larceny case. And there was some handwriting on this document that was pulled from official records, but there was some handwriting that indicated that Floyd McFadden was not served and that he didn't return calls. I found that to be odd. Like you file a case, it's a lot of money. I find it odd that you wouldn't be returning calls concerning the case. So that just kind of stood out to me a little bit. Then on April 17th, there's another preliminary hearing and McFadden pleads guilty to grand larceny in a house or vessel. And it's deferred to April 15th, 2008. And what that means and why that's important is because what happens is they gave him two years of probation and they deferred his sentence. The reason for this is so that if during that two-year time frame or if before 2008 on that date, If he stays out of trouble, then he stays out of prison. However, if he doesn't do the things that he agrees to do in the agreement, then he can be placed in prison. So that's what the deferment is for. So then on August 25th, he is pulled over and he has a suspended license. And it also states that he failed to carry security verification. This case was dismissed. And this case occurred in Pittsburgh County. And the names that you'll see are James Bland, Cheryl Serta, her DA. You'll hear her name again. His attorney in this case 
is Russell Takira. Then, some months later, he again is pulled over on October 31st, Halloween, for again driving while his license is suspended. So apparently between that time, he didn't go take care of his license. And again, failure to carry security verification. On this case is Judge James Bland. The DA is Cheryl Serta, And his attorney is Russell Takira. Now, what I want to point out is that in the first case that we mentioned where he had possession of alcohol for a person under 21, Takira, Russell Takira, is listed as the DA in that case. So he was the DA in that case, and, and then, then later on becomes, he would have been the prosecutor against the drinking charge, but then he becomes his lawyer. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy. That should be a conflict for sure. Yeah, potentially. So then on November 2nd, McFadden, who's 20 years old at this point, violently rapes Crystal Dawn Strong, who's 17 at the time, at her home in Canadian Shores, Oklahoma. This occurred after she left a party. She ended up leaving her vehicle, getting a ride home. And he was there as well. They were not there together. And think about this. He's still married at this time, guys. This is the end of 2003. So he's still married. He was dating a girl named Holly. Not the same Holly of today that we know of. This is a Holly from his past. And he committed this crime while in this relationship and while married. That same night, they find him near some water he has... Attempted to commit suicide by um, slitting his wrists. He's bleeding. He's arrested and he's charged with first degree rape by force or fear. And he's placed on a $50,000 bond. So something interesting that came out at the point of this arrest. And keep in mind that between the time he stole the money from his grandfather, he's got two cases, one in August, one in October, that were both dismissed for his suspended license. He's got another crime. Another crime is supposed to be in violation of your probation, one. And then also, he's married, has a girlfriend. And then the instructions of his agreement that he made for stealing his grandfather's money was that he would make payments at certain intervals. He would check in at certain intervals. He would maintain a job and keep letting them know that he had a job. And he did none of those at all. And something that's even crazier is that according to... Holly's sister at the time, the old Holly, he walked six miles in order to arrive at Crystal Strong's home. Six miles. That's about what? That would have been 30 minutes a mile. Right? It's a long walk. <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm, I'm doing the math. He would have left for the really party. Take you 30 minutes to walk a mile? If you were walking fast, briskly, to go six miles, you're probably going to average around, I don't know, like 20 minutes a mile, something like that. So I'm trying to think of how many hours he walked for. Huh? So at least two hours. He yeah. walked at least two hours. And he got to her place around somewhere after three o'clock in the morning. Right. It makes it's sense with time, the timeline. Yep, it yeah, sure it, makes, it makes sense with the timeline. And then it makes me wonder what kind of information he had on her and about that night because she left her vehicle. So he probably knew she left her vehicle. So he probably thought maybe she was... You know, too drunk to drive. I don't know what was going through his yeah. head, but he's a predator, as we know. So to walk six miles to go assault somebody while you're married and have a girlfriend. So then between November 2nd and November 15th, Cheryl Serta appears on court records as the assistant DA. November 3rd, there's an arraignment, his initial appearance for the rape case. And what you're going to see after this point is that 
because he has this case that he violated his probation on, these cases are now merged because now they're processing them together because he violated his probation. So they're doing them hand in hand. He makes his first appearance. One of the things that they do is despite being on probation, you know, they had given him the $50,000 bond. I definitely think that the fact that he violated his probation and he committed such a heinous crime, it should have definitely been more than $50,000, but they set it at 50,000 and they filed a motion to accelerate his deferred judgment. And what that means is that because how we talked about earlier, how they did the deferred judgment to a certain date, they're basically saying, Hey, we want to accelerate prosecuting him for this now because he violated his probation. So that's what that is. Now on that day, the judge is James Bland. The DA is Jimmy R. Harmon. And McFadden's attorney is Joe Layden. The court clerk is Linda Price Williams. On November 4th, McFadden's charged with first-degree rape. And um, that took place in Pittsburgh County. Russell Takira appears as his attorney on this date. Mind you, he had an attorney appointed, so I'm not sure what occurred there, but Russell Takira was there. Russell Takira was the attorney for the larceny case. Yes. So it's very likely maybe he just assumed the entire case. Yeah. So he could have had one attorney for one case, one attorney for the other, because they're, they're different. So then November 6th, the case report comes forward, and this is something that's submitted by the office who handles probation and parole, and they submit a report saying that he was in violation of probation. And guys, he was in violation of probation for more than six months. Right. And had done nothing as agreed. Who was paying attention to this? Because she should have never been assaulted. So this is where they first messed up the state because he shouldn't have been available to assault her for six months. He's been in violation of his probation. Why is nobody arresting him? Right. And why is nobody arresting him when he has two charges that are dismissed in between the time frame of the larceny and now the assault? And why do they keep dismissing his cases? Like he's obviously got a pattern of, of like driving without a license, speeding, like like he all these little small things are beginning to accumulate to a major thing and no one's seeing the flags come and no one's taking an action on preventing the inevitable of what's getting ready to happen. Right. And nobody's doing their jobs. You know, it's it's super frustrating to see how this how all of this is playing out. And yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, but man, do your job and do the right thing. Like do the things that you're supposed to do. So on November 7th, they have the preliminary hearing for the grand larceny and the first degree rape, and they both waive their 20 days, which is basically the timeline of like how things are processed through a criminal case. So they waived that timeline so that they can kind of speed things up a little bit. So on November 10th, there's a Casey Skag that I've kind of been unable to locate or identify, but she's listed on some documents between November 10th and November 17th of 2023. Uh, the DA is Cheryl Serta, McFadden's attorney is Russell Takira, and the court clerk is Linda Price Williams. So then on November 11th, McFadden submits an application for appointed counsel in the first degree rape case against him. And you see Cheryl Serta, Russell Takira, same court clerks. And then on November 14th, there's a preliminary hearing. And during that preliminary hearing, McFadden is represented by Ronnie May. Now, he wasn't listed as being appointed, so this had to be somebody who was paid. So that's interesting to keep that name in the back of your mind as well as, you know, we talk through this. 
November 17th, an acceleration of deferred sentence on the plea of guilty summary of facts was submitted in the grand larceny case against him. He pleads no contest. He's found guilty. And a judgment and sentence in the grand larceny case against him is eight years to be served concurrently with the first degree rape case against McFadden. And what that means is that instead of being consecutive where he serves whatever he gets for the rape case and then after that's over, then he serves this case, they did it to where it's included. So he's serving them at the same time, basically. So now we get to 2004, January 10th. Judge James Bland appoints Joe Layden. So Joe Layden, again, we're seeing his name for the first degree rape case. Interesting to see, you know, his name again. So between January 16th, 2004 and October 30th, 2020, McFadden, who would have been from the age of 20 to age 37, he serves 85% of his 20-year prison sentence despite his 10 prison infractions, an alleged rape, and a pending felony case. He was released with no bail and no probation on 10-30-2020. His mother, LaDonna Jean McFadden, picked him up and took him to her house initially. That's where he was reported to plan on living when he left. The Department of Corrections had him down as living at that address at McAllister. Yeah, in McAllister. They did. they did. So January 16th is when he reported from, you know, to prison. So he's 20 years old at this point. And he's initially taken into the Lexington Assessment and Reception Center. It's a maximum security prison. It holds over 1,000 inmates. Basically, it's a place where, from the knowledge that I've gathered, that they kind of send all the inmates through there initially to like do their assessments, see what kind of programs they need so that they know what facility to put them in. If they require minimum security, maximum security, um, those kind of things, what their program's going to include as far as certain things that they need to meet, such as a program, like an education program that they want them to complete or something of that nature. So that kind of allows for them to choose the right facility. So that happens on January 16th after he's been, you know, sentenced and everything. And then between February 6th and November 2nd, 2004, McFadden is incarcerated at Great Plains Correctional Facility. So at this point, he's moved over to Great Plains Correctional Facility. And it's a medium security geo prison. At the time, it was a private prison. It holds over 2,000 inmates, about 900 and something today. But currently, it is now a state prison. So it's no longer a private prison. On March 12th of that year, he receives his first prison violation for possession of tobacco. October 11th, now he's 21, he writes a letter. Mind you, he's already had a prison violation. On October 11th, he sits down and writes a letter and dates it, and he sends it to Judge Taylor, who is above James Bland. So he's trying to go over his head like, hey, yeah. <laughs> hey, let me tell you this story. So on November 2nd, McFadden files a motion for sentence modification, and that's where this letter that's dated October 11th is included to Judge Taylor requesting a lighter sentence. And to his surprise, on November 12th, Judge James Bland denies McFadden's motion for sentence modification. So, And this would have been around the time, when we talked about this in our last timeline as well, this would have been around the time when the victim advocate had reached out to Crystal Strong. Yeah, what they told her was, you know, he had been up for six days. I said, how did they know he had been up for six days? How did they know that? Because he said that, like you're believing in him? How did they right. know he had been up for six days? Yeah, they gave her some some load of bull crap. But again, another point of failure. Absolutely. Another point of failure where the victim advocate, the person who's supposed to be protecting the victim. And advocating for the victim is advocating yeah. for the inmate. <laughs> yeah, is advocating for the inmate. Now, what we don't know is... Was there external pressure applied there? 
was someone maneuvering that relationship or trying to get some type of enhanced leniency or yeah, strange. Sure. Definitely strange. So then 2005 on June 21st, he receives his second prison violation. This one is for possession of cigarettes. On November 25th, he receives his third violation. He tested positive for THC, which is marijuana. On December 9th, Floyd Jean McFadden, McFadden's maternal grandfather, dies. In 2006, on March 21st, Linda Price Williams, who's the Pittsburgh County Court clerk, was charged with one count of embezzlement and 20 counts of forgery. She's represented by Ronnie May. Why is that interesting? Because at one point he represented McFadden. Now he's representing the court clerk who is responsible for all of these records that are filed and put together and all of those things. Ronnie May represented McFadden from November 14th, 2003 to November 2nd, 2004. So now in 2006, he's representing Linda Price Williams in this action. And what's interesting is you hear the embezzlement and you hear the 20 counts of forgery. And what did she forge? Did she forge any of McFadden's documents? Is Ronnie May trying to cover that up? So interesting. On April 6th, Riley Elizabeth Allen, who's in Aries, is born to William Cody, who they call Cody, Cody Allen, and Holly Tanette Almeo, who's 18 at the time. McFadden would have been 22 at the point that Riley is born. In 2007, sometime in 2007, Holly abruptly leaves William Cody Allen following a fight. So they get into a fight. There's a recording of him. He spoke to, um, I believe it was either a radio station or a podcast. He said that they had gotten in a bad fight. And when he got home, she had completely cleaned out the house and she was gone. When Riley was little, she would have been pregnant with Michael at the time. So Michael hadn't been born at that point in time whenever she abruptly left Cody. January 7th, he receives his fourth prison violation, and it's for being out of his cell. August 18th and 19th of this same year, McFadden attends a prison rodeo at JHCC, and he's listed as a rodeo cowboy. My I can't believe you can go to prison and, and also go to a rodeo and be in a rodeo. And win and be publicized in the paper. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So here you are rodeoing, and your victim's over here. Trying to recover. Right, yeah, trying to recover. ridiculous. So 2008, January 16th, Michael James Mayo, who is a Capricorn, is born to Cody Allen and Holly Tanette L. Mayo, who's 19 at the time, and McFadden would have been 24 at this point. Between February 20th, 2008, and May 24th, 2022, that's approximately 14 years, Joseph E. Guess and Holly Tanette L. Mayo, who's 19 when they get married, are together. McFadden would have been 24 at this point. So when she gets with Joe Guess, who we know as Joe Guess, who is the father of Tiffany Guess, he marries her shortly after she gives birth to Michael Mayo, which means that they would have been together while she was pregnant. And he does in an interview talk about how he wanted to adopt the kids and that he thought of the kids as his own. And he was with her whenever she had Michael. They were married on February 20th, 2008. On April 22nd of that same year, Brittany Cheyenne Brewer, who's a Taurus, is born to Nathan Brewer and Melania Brewer Gay in Garland, Texas. At this point, McFadden is 24 years old. 2009, February 16th, prison violation number five now. It's for sexual activity. He was found behind another inmate, a male inmate. And just so that you're aware, all the prisons he was in were all male. He was in no prison that, was, that had males and females. 
Then on April 23rd of the same year, Ivy Berlin Webster, who's a Taurus, is born to Justin and Ashley Webster Boykin in Surprise, Arizona. Now, he is not Ivy's biological father. He ends up adopting her. In 2010, January 25th, McFadden, who's 26 at the time, receives prison violation number six. It's another sexual activity. And the inmate in this case claimed that McFadden raped him and actually went to a hospital and had a rape kit done on him. There's a write-up on it that was pushed out. Obviously, the person's name is blacked out. But what's interesting is that that was a Class A infraction, which is lower than a Class X infraction. And that's what they kept it as. And for most of the time that McFadden was in prison, the prison talks about how he remained at a level four, which is the highest level that you can be on for receiving credits to get out early. It just makes no sense. And so they, they didn't categorize that sexual assault as a sexual assault. They categorized it as consensual right. sex. They did. And that's why they categorized it as an A. If it would have been a sexual assault, then it would have been a high probability that he would have gotten more time added to his sentence. Right. And not just that, but if you commit an infraction, you shouldn't remain at a level four for earning right. credits. Like you should be bumped down and you should have to re-earn moving up. Another broken process of this entire system. Absolutely. So then on February 3rd, McFadden receives his seventh prison violation. And keep in mind that this is within probably a week, a little maybe a little bit more than a week of when this alleged rape occurred. Now he's got a charge for battery of another person, which is a class X, which is higher than the potential rape that occurred. So I find it to be no coincidence that those are so close together. I'm pretty sure that that altercation had to do with that incident, which also leads me to believe that it was rape and it wasn't consensual. Yeah. And I have a question about that, too, because now my thought is, what is the prison's policy when an inmate reports being sexually assaulted? Is it higher visibility? Does it get reported? Does it have to be investigated? What was the motivation for the prison to downgrade that sexual assault to consensual sex? And what gives them the authority to be able to say, no, we don't believe that you were raped. We believe that you wanted this to happen. How can they do that? So guess what? Every single violation, prison violation, there's a document that they use that it's recorded on. And things are listed, the details of, of what occurred listed on there who witnessed it and all those things. And that goes to the head person of the prison. So the head person of the prison sees every single one of these infractions that are committed. How none of this stands out to you is just beyond me. This is just, it's ridiculous. And it's no coincidence to me that that, that altercation occurred so closely to that alleged yeah. assault. So if yeah. it was consensual, I don't think we would have seen that. Yeah, like, yeah. And just so you know, I know that there's a reporter that's going to be coming out with, she's going through, there was like 400 and something pages that were turned over from the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. And she's going to dig out a lot of, you know, these details and how things kind of played out. So she'll be able to shine a light more on that picture. Between October 3rd, 2010 to today, Harold Randall Hugel, known as Randy, and LaDonna Jean McFadden are in a serious relationship, but they remain unmarried. 2012, August 3rd, McFadden files an application for post-conviction relief or motion to withdraw a plea. Todd Consher and Josh Reed represent McFadden in this particular filing. The state's DA involved were Farley W. Ward and DA Richard L. Hall. Recommended approval. Ward later would receive an OBA complaint, which is through the Oklahoma um, Bar Association. On October 31st, the state responds to McFadden's application for post-conviction relief or motion to withdraw plea, granting his request. 
Now note, guys, that this was almost an issue because by granting this, there was a very high probability he could have gotten out of prison. So let's recap a little bit on that before we get into that part of it. So in layman's terms, what Jesse was saying is he was saying there was a part of my plea deal that I was unaware of. And as a result, I want to retract my plea. And if there's evidence showing that something was omitted from his plea deal, then they would have to grant it in accordance with the fact that he wasn't aware of all the specifications of his plea. Right. And that's exactly what it was. And what he was saying is that he was never informed about the 85% rule. So he thought he would be able to go in, be a good little boy and get out in no time at all. But instead, what he found out was that at a bare minimum, regardless of how good you are, you have to serve 85%. Right. So when he came forward with that and they looked into it, they couldn't find in any court documents where he had signed anything. And when they listened to the court minutes, the court minutes didn't have anything in there where the court notified him either. So basically, that's it's almost like having a coerced plea. So that's why they, they approved that motion. So my question here is those two attorneys that were representing him for this plea, were they paid for? There's no indication anywhere that these attorneys were provided to him. Okay. I think it's relevant because when we're trying to understand who was paying for Jesse McFadden's legal fees, we know it wasn't LaDonna because LaDonna, she doesn't have a high-end job where she's got all this extra loose cash where she can just... Mm. Pay for an attorney. They're living in a in a beat up old trailer yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So so that means at this point, Ladonna has identified somebody to begin paying for his legal defense. Right. And who is that person? We're assuming it's his dad. Right. Who has yeah. the means. At that point, he would have been in business a little bit over like 12, 13 years. So right. his business would have been growing and he would have been doing well at this point. Right. So in 2013, sometime in 2013, Holly and James Fleming become pen pals. So how this occurred, according to James Fleming, is that another inmate's girlfriend was friends with Holly. And we're talking about the Holly, current day Holly, Holly Tanette L. McFadden, maiden name Mayo. This other inmate's girlfriend was like, hey, she's got this friend who wants to have a prison pen pal. Would you be interested in being her prison pen pal? And so he agreed. You know, somebody to talk to sounds pretty good, right? Good deal. And they began to communicate. And at some point, she's telling him she loves him. They're actually in a relationship. And even though he kind of says, you know, we call it a prison relationship. So it's not like a real relationship. It's not somebody that you were dating before you went in. But it was a relationship that he enjoyed. He got to know Holly a little bit, knew about her kids and all of those things. On January 6th, the state appoints Joe Layden. Again, remember Joe Layden to represent McFadden. On February 26th, McFadden's mom, LaDonna Jean McFadden, and his grandma, Joyce Ann McFadden, visit him in prison. Joyce Ann McFadden is the, and at this point, I don't know if they were still married or not, but she was his grandfather's wife, maternal grandfather. That would have been Floyd Jean McFadden. On March 13th, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board charged with criminal violations of the state's Open Meetings Act in connection with 51 early release requests considered but not listed on its public agenda since 2010. So what that means is this. Oklahoma has a thing where it has to be open to the public where you can see who's up for parole, like who's being considered, and also to see the actions that are taken on those people. And they weren't doing so. And so these were considered criminal violations. So on April 15th, McFadden files a dismissal without prejudice concerning his application for post-conviction relief or motion to withdraw plea. 
Now, why is that important? Because what he filed, they ended up saying, okay, you're right. Nobody let you know that you had to serve 85% of your prison. Why this is important that he would turn around and pull this is because the DA and the attorneys met and whatever evidence the DA had was so damning that if he would have went to trial because that's an option for the state, he could have gotten even more time. So he said, oh, well, maybe this is a bad idea. Let me pull this back. So that's what happened there. On May 15th, McFadden messages Stephanie, Stephanie McFadden at the time, to wish her a happy birthday under a phony Facebook account. He was calling himself Lee Drake, and she doesn't respond to him. She blew him off. September 27th of that same year, McFadden, who's now 30 years old at this time, receives his eighth prison violation, and it's for possession of a cell phone. This is his first incident with a cell phone. On September 30th, McFadden files a brief and supportive application for post-conviction relief requesting an appeal out of time. So he's going at it again, trying to, you know, have something done. One thing that's interesting during this period of time, so now fast forward to December 20th, they have a hearing. As a result, he submits a brief and supportive application for post-conviction relief, and he does it without an attorney. That's kind of unique. Like, why were you doing that? And something tells me that the attorneys were like, hey, like, you don't have a case. So he decided to do it himself. And who prepared this paperwork for him? Like, who helped him do this um, for him to Probably even do a, this? Probably a prison, prison lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Some guy, he paid three cigarettes for him. <laughs> three cigarettes <laughs> and a cell phone. <laughs> On December 26th, there is a habeas corpus that goes out, which is basically saying, hey, you need to bring McFadden in. And it's submitted by the state for McFadden, who's still 30 at the time, in the rape case against him. In 2014... Between January 1st, 2014 and September 21st, 2015, McFadden, who's 30, and James Fleming are cellmates. In 2014, they become roommates on January 1st. They end up being roommates for, I don't know, I guess it would equal out to maybe a year and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer. And also, during that same time frame, so at the beginning of 2014, D.A. Orville Lee Loge, or Loge, I don't know how that's said, Jr., was initially elected in 2014. He resigned early when he was appointed by Governor Kevin Stitt to be a special judge. He was recommended or voted in by district judges Timothy Keene and Brett Smith. Timothy Keene was one of his previous DAs that fell under him. So that's unique. But he first became on DA somewhere in the beginning of 2014. January 6th, McFadden submits an application for appointed counsel and an affidavit of financial inability. That's, again, for his case. He's still trying to get out of prison. On January 7th, Judge James Bland approves this, and he ends up getting appointed an attorney. And, again, he's appointed Joe Layden. Joe Layden must be, like, the worst attorney in the history of Oklahoma. <laughs> you get it. You get it. <laughs> no, you know, you want me to tell you what's unique, actually? What's that? That I haven't mentioned is that... So there's an office that it goes to where they kind of assign like who's appointed and the person appointing, his name is Bill Layden. <laughs> it's his brother. So Bill Layden keeps giving him Jesse McFadden cases. His he brother. must hate his brother. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to win a case. <laughs> so then on January 17th, there's a preliminary hearing conference moved for McFadden's brief and uh, supportive application for post-conviction relief. They move it to January 24th, 2014. On January 24th, there's a preliminary hearing conference over the post-conviction relief, and they issue a habeas corpus for him for the following court appearance that he has. 
So now fast forward to 2015. We're in 2015 now, September 22nd, 2015 to December 13th, 2016. McFadden, between the ages of 32 and 33, is transferred to Jess Dunn Correctional Center. He was in Harp, and now he's transferred to Jess Dunn. So this ends his cell time with James James Fleming. In 2015, so starting in September, September 22nd, McFadden is moved from the prison that he's in and from his cellmate, James Fleming. He would have been 32 at the time, and he ended up getting transferred to Just Done Correctional Center, which is JDCC. It's a minimum security prison, over 1,000 inmates. At this point in time, he's continued to receive his level four credits. To our knowledge that we've been able to find currently, his credits were not reduced. When he was getting ready to leave... So on September 22nd, or right within the days leading up, he offers James Fleming his porn collection. And James Fleming's like, I don't want that. That's contraband. James Fleming's trying to get out. James Fleming wasn't in there for what McFadden was. So he was trying to get out. And because of that, he ransacked the room after McFadden left, making sure he didn't leave anything in there that was going to get him caught up out of, you know, spite or whatever from McFadden. So then between October 15th, 2015 and December um, 31st, 2015, somewhere at the end of 2015, those last few months. So this is this is only a couple months within a month, maybe two months of when McFadden has left and gone to Just Done. So now he's at Just Done and James Fleming receives a letter from Holly, who's 33 at the time, says, hey, some guy randomly started writing me. Guess who this random guy is? Jesse McFadden. Yes. And she wasn't the only person he got a letter from. He got a letter from another woman who he had been talking to at one point who also was like, hey, this random guy is writing me like, who is he? What did James tell them? We don't know that. So James has not publicly come out and shared information as to what specifically he told them. James, if you're listening... What's up, James? We want to know. (laughs) We want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. And truthfully, obviously, given this pattern, knowing what we know now, you've got a prison pin pal of all the fish in the sea. You want the fish behind the bars and you're telling him you love him and everything. And now all of a sudden you guys have a split for whatever reason you have your split for. And suddenly you're receiving messages now from another inmate. You're like, hey, this is kind of weird that somebody randomly started writing me. First of all, that's a huge red flag to me. How did you get my information, right, to even be writing me? And so I would be questioning who the heck is this guy and what's up with him that he would think it was okay to just turn around and randomly write me when he doesn't know me. And he didn't just do it with her. He did it with somebody else too. And something tells me that James let her know. And something tells me that James also let the other woman know as well. James did speak on his relationship with Jesse and how uncomfortable he was with Jesse. And he knew how much of a, of a deviant and how much of a predator that Jesse was being when he was in the prison. So something would tells me that he has appeared very helpful, very right. informative, very uh, forward approaching. So I feel like that's something that he would have continued to do. It's in his character right. that he would have been like, hey, you may want to watch out for this guy. I don't trust him. Maybe he didn't tell him everything. At least would have gave him a warning and said, hey, I don't have a good feeling about this guy. You may not want to write him back. And, and oh, by the way, I didn't give him your information. Right. And what you have to understand is that I believe that Fleming might be on probation currently. 
And he's not going to want to ruffle feathers of the wrong people who are going to take action against him like a whistleblower. So, you know, we reached out to him to talk to him and we were transparent with him about the questions we were going to ask him the main questions. And after he saw the questions, he didn't want to speak to us. So I wouldn't say he didn't want to speak to us. I would say, yeah, he's just not ready yet to speak on that situation. Right. And one of the other things too, just to note is that he's been in communication with her family and that becomes a very sensitive topic because she's no longer here. So she can't defend herself. She can't speak to the things that are coming out and that people are saying, and that's a sensitive topic. So we still have to remember that somebody lost their daughter or their sister or somebody that they cared about. So now 2016, between January 1st, 2016 and December 31st, 2019, DA Orville Lee Logue, remember we mentioned him earlier, he serves on the Oklahoma Board of Directors from 2016 to 2019 for the ODAA. And what that is, is that's the Oklahoma DA's Association. Between January 8th, 2016 and November 13th, 2018, McFadden, between the ages of 32 and 34, communicates with Caitlin Lindsay Babb, who would have been between 16 and 18 years old for about two years. On January 8th, that was the first time that he contacted her. And what's very interesting and very disturbing is that when he first contacts her, which to give you a little bit of insight there, Caitlin was removed from a tough situation and she was living with her grandparents at the time. And when she moved with her grandparents, she got a new phone and a new phone number. And this new phone number that she got, she was constantly receiving messages for a Shannon. And she said she at the time had been having some issues and didn't have a lot of friends and people were always reaching out. And she said, so one day I just responded and lo and behold, the person she responded to was McFadden. So they began this communication together. Well, what do we know about this girl, Shannon, who owned the phone prior to Caitlin? So when we tried to dig into the phone number, some interesting stuff came up. I don't want to say that it, that it's been vetted at this point. Some stuff came out that she could potentially have been a escort. And that's not something that we can prove, guys. So I don't want to throw that on her. But... She's deceased, and she actually died in April of 2020, so within less than a year of when McFadden would be released from prison. Do we know anything about how she passed? It just said that she was found dead. I don't know if she committed suicide. She could have committed suicide. I don't know. So Okay. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But of all the phone numbers to get... Yeah, she got... Somebody where a bunch of creepy people are going to be reaching out to you. If that's an escort's phone, like you're going to get some creepy messages. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting about when McFadden first reached out to Caitlin on January 8th of 2016 is that he instructed her to send him a photo of her holding up a piece of paper with his name to indicate that she wasn't a cop. That's something that escorts do with people trying to make sure that they're not cops so that they don't get in trouble. That correlation to me is interesting. That's very interesting. It's also creepy. It is very creepy. Then sometime in that same year, a few things occur. McFadden, who's 32 years old, and remember that Caitlin's 16, he teaches her how to access and utilize the dark web. At 16 years old, he's teaching her this. Yeah. So this right here, hey, red flag, lets me know that what are you doing on the dark web? (laughs) You know, what's going on? Nothing good happens on the dark web. Yeah, it don't even sound good. It sounds so, sounds bad. It sounds scary. It sounds like a scary place to, to a dark, hang out. A dark curtain. Also, he loads spyware on her phone oh. so that he can track her. And then 
at some point in time, she says she was working at Walmart, but she had a job at 16. She said she had had a conversation with somebody at work one day. And she said when she got home and she, she gets her call from McFadden or they're communicating, she says he identifies the kid, talks about the conversation they had, talks about what the kid looked like. He knew all that information. And he's like, what's up with so-and-so? Why are you talking to him? And what he tells her is that he's got friends who are watching her. That's pretty scary. Yeah. You're 16 years old, and this is a grown man. And and he's in prison. Right. And he's in prison. And how is he? how does he have that information while he's in prison? I have a theory, and I don't know this, but that spyware that he put on her phone could have potentially been his way of monitoring her location, her conversations. Maybe he could have seen things happening through if there was a camera on that phone. Um, a number social of social media, things. all kinds of stuff. Yeah, pretty just ugh. scary stuff. Yeah, very scary stuff. And if he did it once, guys, I'm pretty sure he'll do it again. So between February 1st and October 31st is the time frame when the prison will come out later and kind of tag him for the two felonies of soliciting sexual conduct or communication with a minor by use of technology and pornography, procure, produce, distribute, and possess juvenile pornography. Those are the two charges that he would be charged with. And that's the time frame that they rolled up into those charges. And that has to be with what they found in the phone. So whatever evidence they had, th- that evidence was between those dates, even though the first time he spoke with her was January 8th. Got it. Another thing just that I want to point out real fast is that one of the things that they did find in the phone and one of the things that's unique as well is you wonder if he knew actually knew her age. And that was a question that I had asked her and he did. And the reason he knew her age is because when he asked her how old she was, he asked her to prove it and she sent him her school ID. So he was very aware of her age. Mm-hmm. So July 18th, McFadden, who's 32, receives his ninth prison violation. And this is for his second incident with a contraband cell phone and this is the cell phone that just days later on july 21st he pleads guilty to misconduct for the possession of the phone and the reason that's unique that to say that he pled guilty is because the first incident with the cell phone there was an issue with that and the issue with that first incident was that and possession of a of a cell phone is a class x he had mentioned at some point in time that he was able to get out of that based on how they handled it so similar to like if you obtain evidence with an illegal search so i'm not sure how that all played out but i know that there was a girl that was involved with kind of a sting operation to catch him with the phone right so somehow in that process somebody messed up and they weren't able to give him the class x infraction so he um, pleads guilty to the misconduct on july 21st on august 22nd holly receives a speeding ticket near the correctional facility where he is at so we're assuming we're making the connection that potentially she was driving from Arkansas to Oklahoma in order to visit Jesse at this point. Yes. Where was Caitlin in the middle of this? Was she still communicating with Jesse or is that over? I honestly point? think that there was kind of a mixture of overlaps of when he, yeah. I think he was talking to whoever wanted to talk to him. Truthfully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of evident in how this is all kind of coming out. But I do know that Caitlin had said at, that at the point she first started talking to him, that there was a break in the relationship between Holly and McFadden. So there was at some point she broke things off with him and then reconnected with him. So there's mm. some back and forth. So she knew very well who Holly was. She knew all about Holly and Caitlin at 16 knew what McFadden was in prison for. At 16 years old, she knew and understood what he was in prison for. How does she know? Did he tell her? 
Was he honest with her or did he, did she figure that out on her own? I think she did a little bit of digging, but cause he wasn't honest with her. No, okay, okay. because she said that he did lie to her about what happened with yeah. Crystal Strong. The reason why I asked that question is because if he lied to her, then we can assume that he lied to Holly. Oh, absolutely. And we cannot assume because Caitlin is intelligent and she's smart and she did her own research and she figured out what was, what he was in for. We can't therefore assume that Holly did the same. Right. Plus her grandparents were like in on this deal now at this point because they're right. like, hey, <laughs> yeah. old creepy guy communicating with our granddaughter. Yeah. So fast forward to, so that was in August where she got the speeding ticket, Holly did. On October 24th, Caitlin's grandfather contacts the Oklahoma Department of Correction to inform them that he found messages and photos and videos that were being sent to his granddaughter from prison from an inmate, which was McFadden. Right. So that's how that ended up in the case where the dates of their messages back and forth that they were able to find on that contraband cell phone. Right. So as a result of the cell phone and these charges, he is moved to the Oklahoma state penitentiary. So something to keep in mind is that this prison that he's currently at just done is a lower security prison. So he was moved to a lower security prison. So then this incident takes place. So then they move him to the Oklahoma state penitentiary, which is known as big Mac. It's a maximum security prison that holds more than 700 inmates with five housing units that include one for death row inmates. Ooh. He was there between December 14th and July 30th. On December 6th of that year, McFadden, who's 33 at this point, receives his 10th prison violation. And this 10th prison violation is a law violation, which was a class X. And that was due to those two charges. Right. So that case with, with Caitlin Babb. So, so it's a violation for breaking the law in addition to the charges that he's pending. Yeah. So then 2017, January 24th, McFadden's mom, LaDonna, wants to make him a quilt. I know that seems kind of interesting, but it just kind of coincides with the relationship that she had with her son. Did she um, ever make Cody a quilt? No, she actually doesn't ever mention Cody, truthfully, <laughs> other than it's a protection order. There's no pictures of her and Cody together, like nothing yeah. like that. They didn't have that kind of relationship. And according to Caitlin, they didn't. Cody was like a like a troubled child that she didn't want to deal with. She was sick of dealing with it. Yeah. He was getting in trouble. He was all those things that happen when you've been abused. Wonder, wonder why. Yeah. On January 8th, McFadden's mom, LaDonna, communicates with Caitlin. And in that communication, she's fully aware of Caitlin's age. And this was one of the things that I asked her because I was curious. And at this point in time, Caitlin's 17 years old when um, LaDonna communicates with her. But those messages between them is very obvious that she's aware of Caitlin's age. So she knew it wasn't like she didn't know her age. Wow. So what you're saying is LaDonna reached out to Caitlin and they actually had like real conversations. Yeah, they were communicating. Wow. And at this point in time, now understand that throughout this period of time where things are going back and forth with Caitlin and with McFadden is, you know, like she's thinking she's in love and yeah. at different points in time and she's being groomed, you know, she's being manipulated and not just by him, but by his mom. Right. So this is where this first kind of interaction occurs. So then on, on January 24th, mama wants to make him a quilt. Then June 18th, Caitlin meets LaDonna for the first time. In person? In person. Oh my God. Yeah. They have lunch together. And one thing that Caitlin says kind of struck her as interesting is that She's like, I'm pretty sure that we even passed the prison he was in. Oh it was my awkward. God. She said it was a very awkward communication. Who initiated that? Was that LaDonna? Did, was LaDonna like, let me take you to lunch? 
I don't know. She said that McFadden wanted them to meet. It was important because he was telling Caitlin that he was going to marry her. He's like, we're going to get married. I don't care what my mom thinks. This is probably where that text message comes from. When it says, the life that I promised to have with you, that eventually comes out. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. that makes a lot of sense. So he's um, trying to build his little home right now. But how disgusting for LaDonna to be involved in the grooming of, of this young kid. Yeah. Ridiculous. It's completely 100% enabling of his behavior. Absolutely. And I'm going to be honest. I was surprised when I found that out because I was thinking maybe she, you know, like you're always going to love your kids. And I was thinking maybe she had this guilt. She, you know, whatever the case may have been, I wasn't thinking she was going to be complicit in everything and know the age and be like, be a part of it. And that really makes me again, question the relationship between Jesse and Cody and how much she knew about anything that might've been going on with that. Right. Cause she seems completely complicit and completely on board with whatever Jesse wants to do. And like, she's perfectly okay with covering things up yeah. and sweeping things under the rug for sure. So on July 31st, McFadden moves to a different facility. He moves back to Joseph Harp Correctional Facility, JHCC, which is the medium security facility. So now he's being downgraded and he ends up being there until at the time of his release on September 29th. He's now 34 at the time he's officially charged for the two felonies that we spoke about earlier concerning Caitlin Babb on October 7th, Caitlin Babb, who's now 18 at the time meets LaDonna Jane McFadden outside the prison at some kind of event for a dulcimer. It's like kind of like a guitar. She's really into them and they were having some type of little like road show or little event. And she met her there for that event. They meet, that's on October 7th, and that would be their last in-person meeting. Yeah. There would be communications with them via phone, but that would be their last in-person meeting. On November 16th, there's a commitment document, and basically what that is is saying that due to the charges that they're officiating this process of him going through the legal process. On November 27th, Fadden's attorney, who's Don F. Baker, keep this name in your minds. Now, What's interesting to note is that on November 27th, when this takes place, it's listed that his entrance of appearance is listed. So whenever you obtain an attorney, whenever you get an attorney, they have to file something that shows like I'm representing this person. So he was not appointed. That means he was paid. This guy is very well known. His brothers are very well known. And he ain't cheap. This is, this is a high-end attorney. Very high-end. And known... For extending out cases. And known for representing sex offenders. Wow. So an attorney for sex offenders who want their cases to be prolonged to the point of exhaustion of the victim so that they drop charges. And so that's his plan of attack here. Obviously, they got him dead to rights. Yes. And something just for you to be aware of is that this guy had a lot of influence for Ronald Reagan. He was the president's attorney. He served in a lot of different capacities. He was very well known in the legal field. And pretty much it seems like everybody pretty much did whatever it was that he wanted them to do because of his status. Now, to add on top of that, one of his brothers is in the top 100 attorneys for the U.S. And then the other brother is the president of the Creek Nation Indians in the Muscogee area, which is a very big deal. So then the question here is, did the Donut King pay for the attorney fees? Is that who paid for these high-end expensive attorneys to try to get his son out of jail? Ding, ding, ding. I think so. <laughs> I really do think so. 
November 29th, 2017 to December 31st, 2019, a new DA comes into the picture. So she comes into the picture pretty much almost at the start of the case. But one thing I want to mention is that shortly before this, a district attorney comes in between September 29th and November 29th. And when they do their first little appearance and Baker comes in and he files his motion for discovery to see what kind of evidence they have, the DA that serves during that short period of time a month later, he was no longer in the DA's office. Mm. Not to be heard of again until after the murders on May 1st, 2023. Wow. On November 29th, um, District Attorney Nailani Ching with the Muskogee County District Attorney's Office represents the state and Caitlin Lindsay Babb between the ages of 18 and 20 for a total of two years, one month, and two days. So in two years, she couldn't prosecute this case. Wow. Let me guess. They gave her a promotion. Yes, they did. <laughs> yes. That was just did. a wild guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. She ended up becoming a federal prosecutor. Wow. And how did Caitlin feel about this particular attorney, her, her relationship with this particular attorney? You know, truthfully, Caitlin wasn't even aware <laughs> that there had been so many switches because it almost seemed to her like, when she'd reach out, that it'd be a different person or a different person would call her. Suddenly it's a different DA. And so this one seemed to be the most consistent and one of the only ones who spoke to her directly instead of having just some random person in the office communicating with her. Yeah. And um, Caitlin actually talks about the fact that of all of them, she seemed to be the most caring. And um, that's probably evident by the fact that she tried to accelerate the trial a couple times. She did. And where this is very telling to me is that in the year of 2019, because mind you, she had this case for two years and she actually left a little bit before December because in November there's written communication between Caitlin's grandmother and her when she notified her of some letters where they wrote back and said, Nailani's no longer here. And that was in November. So I'm not sure the exact dates that Nailani left, but when Nailani left, she left to take a federal position. And she also had received a couple awards prior to that. So the case hasn't been completed. It's not been prosecuted. And magically, she's receiving two, two awards that year. And the next thing we know, poof, she's gone. There's been no case handoff, no call to Caitlin or her family saying, hey, somebody else is going to be taking over just so that you're aware. You know, I've let them know everything, whatever the case may be. That didn't take place. So a little sketchy there, some red flags there. But we do know that Nailani did reach out to Caitlin after the incident. I don't believe that she reached out to her personally. I believe that what happened was she communicated it to the current um, DA there in Muskogee, who is Larry Edwards. And Larry Edwards communicated that to Caitlin and said, hey, Nailani wanted to let you know that, you know, that she loves you. She's thinking about you. And, you know, she just wanted you to know that. Yeah. So I think she had a lot of feelings about the case. And I think she was really she probably was one of the ones that really cared about Caitlin Babb and was really trying to get her justice and just kept running into roadblocks with yeah. his attorney continuously pushing the case down the road. And I don't know, obviously at this point in time, we don't know all the details, but there definitely seems to be like, like when you're looking at stuff in writing and you're, there's one thing to, for people to say things, it's a whole nother thing for their actions to show something, for their actions to match whatever it is that they're saying. And so when you look at, at how Caitlin's case was going during the time that Nailani had it, you can see that, you know, like you were just saying, that she was trying to accelerate the process. And it appears that she was trying to accelerate that process during the time that she knew she was going to be leaving because she wouldn't have left rapidly. It would have been she would have known she was selected 
you know, she had to be selected. So she knew right. she was selected and she was trying to get the case through so that she could close out the case before she turned around and took a different position. But his attorney was notorious for pushing cases. He was. And that's one of the things that a lot of people or said. Or so I heard. <laughs> so you're, I'm pretty sure that we could find that in black and white too, honestly. Yeah. People have told us that this particular attorney was known for this. Um, he was known for getting people off who had sexual related offenses. And he right. was also known for kicking cans down the road long enough to where either people gave up or it just bought him as much time as possible. Uh, and what, what a what a strategic way for an attorney to take someone who you know is guilty and you know you're not going to be able to get them off because the evidence is, is just so astronomical that there's no way that he's going to be able to defend this person to say, well, convince him not to press charges and we'll just keep moving the case forward. Never try the case. That is definitely a, a tactic that seems to have been used in this scenario. That shouldn't even be allowed. There should be some type of thing in place where it says that, like a football game, you know, yeah. you're allowed so many flags or so many timeouts. You should only right. be allowed so many timeouts in a, yep. in a trial. Three strikes. That yeah. that's you it. submitted three. You're no longer allowed to take vacation during a, uh, well, at that a point, scheduled trial. At that point, it should just be contempt. It should. I hold you in contempt because like you're manipulating the legal system. Absolutely. But you know, you got to give it to an attorney who uses a loophole like anybody who's intelligent is going to do that. And he's making money during the process too. So he's right. also stretching out how long he's making money as well. So it's definitely not a selfless act by yeah. any means. Yeah. As we close out part one of the updated timeline, we find Jesse's case being consistently pushed. We are left wondering if Burl Blair, the Donut King, is in fact Jesse McFadden's father. We are left wondering what could possibly make this case any more messed up. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, part two of this update will leave you floored. You'll learn about LaDonna's involvement in Caitlin Babb's case. You'll be angry as to what the Henrietta Police Department do when a mother reports Jesse's inappropriate communication with young girls at the McAllister Skating Rink. And you'll be shocked by what's discovered about the autopsies for Jesse and Holly McFadden. You're not going to want to miss this. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.